You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to conference coverage, Diabetes Highlights from Endo, the 95th annual meeting of the Endocrine Society. The Endocrine Society is the world's oldest, largest, and most active organization devoted to research on hormones and the clinical practice of endocrinology. Now we'll take you to the conference floor, where ReachMD's senior reporter, Art Marcassini, interviewed global thought leaders in diabetes care. As a reminder, the complete diabetes diagnosis and management recording is freely available at endosessions.org. I am speaking with Dr. Carol Weisham, who is the Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at the University of Washington and is a practicing endocrinologist in Spokane, Washington. The first thing we'd like to do is have you give a brief overview of your talks here at the meeting so that our listening audience will have a better understanding of what you were able to discuss with this great attendance we had this year. Well, thank you. We've recognized that the important role that diabetes is playing now in our endocrine practice, and we've attempted to develop a a day-long seminar that reviews some of the hot topics in diabetes. And obviously we have speakers coming to the endo who are giving their own research and participating in the meeting, and we're able to really pull from that expertise and get the top speakers in diabetes. The diabetes and diagnosis management really had a very broad spectrum. We talked a lot about new technology, sensors, CGMs, people who are very expert at using them and helping the audience understand how to better utilize those technologies in their practice. We talked about the new emerging therapies in diabetes, both injectable as well as oral therapies. There was a session on the lipids um, and the lipids master clinician, uh, Dr. Eckel, gave a nice discussion and review of how to treat that difficult patient with lipids. We had very good information on pediatric diabetes, pregnancy and related diabetes. So there, you know, it was it really covered a broad spectrum of information. That's great. Thank you very much, Dr. Weishan. You're welcome. Thank you. I am speaking with Dr. Robert Eckel, who is professor of medicine at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus in Aurora, Colorado. We're happy to have Dr. Eckel here today to talk about his presentation at this meeting, which is entitled Lipids, Emerging Cardiovascular Risk Markers. Welcome, Dr. Eckel. Thank you very much. First thing we'd like to do, Dr. Eckel, is have you just provide a brief overview of the presentation that you will be making at this great meeting. I was given the challenging topic of emerging cardiovascular disease risk factors. And this is a comprehensive overview, actually, of seven risk factors that were identified in the National Cholesterol Education Program Adult Treatment Panel 3 guidelines published in 2001 and amended in 2004. So my challenge was to either be selective and pick a few of these seven and go into more detail, or in fact what I chose to do was in fact choose each of the seven, providing some update on these various topics as to what's occurred since the publication in 2001, and that's really what I addressed in my talk. What would you say were the most important points to remember from your talk? And I know there was quite a few, but if you could narrow it down for our listening audience. Absolutely. So I'm going to deal with these seven in order, and I'll be brief. The first was apolipoprotein B. It's well known now that ApoB doesn't replace LDL cholesterol or non-HDL cholesterol in assessing cardiovascular disease risk. So don't measure ApoB routinely in your practice. But I made a point that patients with hypertriglyceridemia whose LDL cholesterol is low, let's say under 100, or even perhaps between 100 and 130 who have hypertriglyceridemia, that ApoB may be informative about those patients who are at increased risk. 
Now again, this isn't evidence-based guidelines, but it's an update on what we knew in 2001 in relationship when to use ApoB in practice. So if you're going to measure ApoB in your hypertriglyceridemic patients, it circumvents non-HDL cholesterol because there could be a two-fold variation in ApoB for any given level of non-HDL cholesterol. So if you measure ApoB and it's elevated, you should be using ApoB as a target for your therapy, not necessarily non-HDL cholesterol. The second topic I addressed was lipoprotein small a. Lipoprotein small a we know is a lipoprotein that is associated with a markedly increased risk of atherosclerosis when levels are above 30. And as they increase the levels that can reach as high as 200 milligrams per deciliter, that risk continues to increase. Now we have no specific therapy for elevations in lipoprotein small a. So if you're going to measure it, how are you going to use it in your practice? And the feeling among most lipid experts is if you measure LPA and it's above 30, we should be more aggressive in lowering LDL and non-HDL cholesterol. The third thing I covered was briefly addressed, and that's homocysteine. Homocysteine 10 years ago was felt to maybe be the new cholesterol in terms of atherosclerosis. But what we know now is a 25% lowering of homocysteine in patients that are hyperhomocysteinemic, in fact, confers no benefit for cardiovascular disease risk. So I would recommend that the update in homocysteine is don't measure it routinely in your practice. The next was a topic entitled prothrombotic factors, and I simply addressed that by looking at the aspirin data. So we have evidence in secondary prevention that aspirin should be used in all patients who have cardiovascular disease. In terms of the high-risk primary prevention patients, we have evidence both in men and women that aspirin therapy can be given with some degree of confidence that risk can be reduced. For men, that's coronary heart disease risk, and for women, it's ischemic stroke. But one thing in women you have to be a bit cautious of, there is a bit higher risk of hemorrhagic stroke in women treated with aspirin, so you have to individualize that decision. The fifth factor is pro-inflammatory factors, and that's really represented by the biomarker high-sensitivity C-reactive protein. We know that elevations in CRP confer additional risks for cardiovascular disease. We also know that lowering CRP from both primary and secondary prevention trials reduce risk. But are guidelines going to change based on this evidence? And at this point in time, that's unclear. If you're going to measure HSCRP, I think it should be done in a setting where patients are at intermediate risk and you use CRP elevations as a tiebreaker, whether to institute statin therapy. The sixth topic was impaired fasting glucose. And I simply used the Framingham Heart Study to summarize a wealth of literature that demonstrates that impaired fasting glucose is not a risk factor for cardiovascular disease, but impaired glucose tolerance is a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. So does that mean you should be doing glucose tolerance tests on all your patients? Absolutely not. But in patients with impaired fasting glucose, repeated assessment of fasting glucose over time, measuring hemoglobin A1C, and as that approaches 6.5, where the diagnosis of diabetes is made, then you should think about maybe taking steps to reduce the likelihood of diabetes. The seventh and final topic was that related to subclinical atherosclerosis. And now we're talking about things like carotid intermediate thickness and coronary calcium scores. And I provided evidence from a recent JAMA paper that ultimately coronary calcium scores are capable of identifying high-risk patients with a high degree of reliability, predicting coronary heart disease much more than carotid intermediate thickness or C-reactive protein. The question is, who should get a coronary calcium score? There's a bit of radiation, there's some cost connected to it, 
and ultimately decisions to be made are not evidence-based. However, I do think we need to be a little bit more aggressive in ordering this test and people at intermediate risk defining those who should be treated versus those who should not. Any other important information that came out of your talk that you think the audience would like to hear? I think it's important for the audience to realize that what you're hearing from me is simply a summary of those risk factors updated to the best of my ability. You need to really look into each one of these on your own and be satisfied with the recommendations I've suggested here today. These are not evidence-based guidelines. Remember, these are emerging risk factors that need to be carefully considered to individualize your patient-based decision. Excellent. Thank you, Dr. Echol. We appreciate that. You're very welcome. We are at the Endocrine Society's 95th Annual Meeting and Expo in San Francisco, California. I'm happy today to be speaking with Dr. Edmund Ryan, who is Professor of Medicine at the University of Alberta, who has a particular interest in diabetes and pregnancy. Dr. Ryan it will be presenting GDM, Screening and Diagnosis, A Continent Divided. Welcome. Thank you. First thing we'd like to do is have the audience maybe understand a little bit about how you came to the title of your talk at this meeting, and then give us an overview of the discussion that you'll have with the audience here. Gestational diabetes is common, and it's important. It occurs during pregnancy, but diagnosing it has been very difficult with a variety of organizations giving their opinions. Mexico has an approach, Canada has an approach. Within the States itself, there's different approach from ACOG, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, and the American Diabetes Association. So there's this dilemma of we have a common medical condition that arises during pregnancy, is important for the baby, and yet we can't agree on how to diagnose it. Very interesting. Can you give a brief overview of the talk itself? Sure. It's been recognized for many years that women who are destined to develop diabetes in the long term during a pregnancy, well before they develop the diabetes, actually deliver large babies, some of whom may actually be stillborn. And when the pancreases of those babies were examined, they were found to have expansion of the islet tissue in the pancreas. They had islet hyperplasia. The pancreases were making too much insulin. So it was surmised that high glucose during pregnancy was going into the baby, and the baby was responding accordingly. It was in the 50s that Elsie Carrington came up with the idea that a glucose tolerance test during the pregnancy could identify those people at high risk, and she showed better outcomes when she treated those people. Then in the 60s, Sean O'Sullivan came up with formal criteria. They were accepted, but then things went off the rails. Different organizations developed different criteria. There were 13 different international organizations in 2006, when you look at their criteria, all different. And the study that was meant to put this together and sort out the problem was the hyperglycemia adverse pregnancy study. This was a study where all women were given an oral glucose tolerance test. They looked at the outcomes and related them to the glucose categories. And yes, the women with the higher glucose values had larger babies and more problems with, in terms of outcomes. The problem was that there was no clear cut point that we could call it. A consensus conference was convened, and it decided that at the level of a 1.754-fold increased risk of a large baby, that's the level we would associate with diabetes trouble came out of that was that this would label and diagnose 18% of the pregnant population with gestational diabetes, a huge number, and not necessarily demonstrated to have clear benefit for treatment. So the American Diabetes Association accepted these criteria, the American College of Obstetricians said no, and the NIH actually convened a consensus conference in March to try to resolve it. And the end result of that consensus conference was they felt that the American diabetes position did not actually 
sustain its efforts, it withstand scrutiny, and there was not enough evidence to support it. But we're still left with the problem of where to go. And what I proposed in my talk was an intermediate alternative pattern, a pattern that actually we've been using in Canada for many years, where we do a 50-gram screening test. If the level is over 200, we call it gestational diabetes. If it's under 140, there's no problem. And if it's in between, then we do a glucose tolerance test, a 75-gram glucose tolerance test, and that we diagnose gestational diabetes with numbers associated with a two-fold increased risk of gestational diabetes. And those levels that are associated with two-fold increased risk of a big baby are a fasting value of 95, one hour after the 75 gram glucose 191, and two hours 162 milligrams percent of glucose. And this gives you a GDM rate of about 6 to 10%, which is actually much better in terms of balancing cost and benefit. The fact that you have two tests, a screen test and a glucose test, gives you some handle on reproducibility, and it's actually more acceptable to pregnant women. I think that's a reasonable compromise, a reasonable way forward, one that has been accepted by the Canadians as a preferred route, and I would suggest that the American Diabetes Association and ACOG consider such a compromise. What do we know now that we didn't know previously? What's the, the newest information? I, I think the new aspect that's coming in terms of gestational diabetes is the realization that glucose isn't the be-all and end-all of everything that in fact the mother's weight is probably as important or if not more important in terms of determining some of these adverse outcomes that we've looked at such as preeclampsia and large babies. And this realization that we shouldn't just focus not only on glucose but also on the whole mother, particularly her weight, is of vital importance for the future and will be directing many things in the future. And the other aspect is that all told, when you factor in the mother's weight and her glucose, it still actually answers only about 25% of what causes a big baby. There are other things out there that we don't know yet that would be very deserving of further study. Dr. Ryan, thank you for being with us today. Unfortunately, we've run out of time. My pleasure. You're listening to ReachMD's conference coverage, Diabetes Diagnosis and Management, sponsored by the Endocrine Society. To hear all of Diabetes Diagnosis and Management and more from Endo 2013, please visit endosessions.org to access the free webcasts. I am speaking with Dr. Stephen Kahn, the professor of medicine at the VA Puget Sound Healthcare Systems and at the University of Washington in Seattle, Washington. Dr. Kahn has presented the beta cell. Is it the key to the pathogenesis of type 2 diabetes? Welcome, Dr. Kahn. Thank you very much. First question we'd like to have you address for our audience is to give a brief overview of your presentation here at the Endocrine Society's meeting. Sure. Um, at the meeting this year, I spoke on the topic of the pathogenesis of type 2 diabetes and specifically provided data that would strongly suggest, just like very many endocrine systems, that the regulation of glucose is tightly controlled by a feedback loop and that the key organ to this process was the pancreatic islet and specifically the islet beta cell that produces and secretes insulin. So that under conditions in normal individuals, the amount of insulin that's secreted is tightly regulated so the glucose levels don't go too high and don't go too low when we eat. And that in individuals who might get obese, as we're seeing occurring in our society commonly, they develop insulin resistance where the insulin doesn't work so well, and so the beta cell simply compensates for this by increasing its release of insulin. What I was also able to show participants at the meeting was the fact that under conditions where one asks the islet to secrete insulin and where there is a defect in the islet, one sees 
the amount of insulin resistance not compensated adequately through this feedback loop by an appropriate amount of insulin, so the glucose levels rise. And an important message that was part of this was that while we think about glucose tolerance in categories such as individuals with diabetes or pre-diabetes, we can show from the data that we have that have been derived in patients who have diabetes and pre-diabetes as well as participants who are normal, that as the glucose level increases even from the normal range through impaired glucose tolerance to diabetes, there's a progressive loss of beta cell function and that insulin resistance is not changing. And therefore, the key to the whole process is the beta cell, which sets us up also that when we think about treatment, we have to remember that whatever we do, whether it acts directly on the beta cell or acts in the tissues where insulin acts, it's going to be having effects on the beta cell that we want to be positive in terms of improving the function of the beta cell. What do you think that came out of this discussion and this talk that, that maybe the audience didn't know or, or our listening audience may not have known previously? I think the thing that came out of this that was, I hope, clear to the audience who heard me speak was this concept that the beta cell A is absolutely critical, B, that there's a progressive loss of beta cell function as glucose levels rise, and that the approach we're going to have to take to reduce progression to diabetes has got to keep the beta cell in mind. And in fact, as part of the talk, I showed data from the diabetes prevention program, mm -hmm. which has shown that metformin, a drug used to treat diabetes, and lifestyle modification resulting in weight gain, what they really do is unload the beta cell, so the beta cell is actually performing better. And the reason why we can slow the progression to diabetes, as seen in the diabetes prevention program with these two agents, is exactly by lowering the demand in the beta cell and letting it function better. Similarly, I also showed data looking at the different agents that we use to treat diabetes and believe that what might have been new to many of the people in the audience is that the beta cell, again, was key. That when the beta cell failed, so people's diabetes progressed, the glucose levels rise, and we have to add an extra agent. And again, here, interestingly, we see different outcomes with different agents, which also depend on how they affect the beta cell. The last message, I think, that I try to convey related to these studies, which is not what is typically considered, is that when a company does the required studies to register a drug for lowering glucose and therefore treating people with diabetes, they're required typically to provide data to the FDA or the European agencies that are six months, maximally typically a year's worth of data. Mm -hmm. And what is clearly coming from the long-term studies that some of us are involved in now is that what you see at six months what you may see at 12 months doesn't translate to what you see at four and five years. And so this becomes very, very important when we think about the agents we're going to use, what is likely to result in progressive failure of the beta cell and therefore not being able to harness it in and keep the glucose levels normal. And these are the sorts of things that I'm hoping the audience went away with as some of the message to consider as clinicians and practitioners choose what they're going to give their patients to treat their diabetes or potentially even to prevent them getting diabetes. How do you see this information and maybe these discussions shaping the kind of the future of treating diabetes? So some of the discussions that have been held at this meeting and which I've participated in have already started to have an impact. So let me give you two examples that I think are very important. I'll provide two websites that I think would be very useful to people outside of the radio or within range of the radio but not sitting with us here today what they could actually use to go and find out more about these studies. The fact that we understand now the critical nature of the beta cell in this process, that we understand that the beta cell is failing in individuals with prediabetes who go on to get diabetes, and individuals already who have diabetes, 
there are two big NIH studies that both got launched within the last few weeks. The one is called the GRADE study. And the website for that is gradestudy.org. Very simple. In this study, what's being asked is, what is the best medication to add as a second agent after metformin? And in this study, people across the country and over 30 different sites across the country, which means that many individuals living in this program are probably living within range of one of those particular sites. They could go to gradestudy.org and look. We're going to take people who are on metformin with type 2 diabetes and then randomize them to receive either a DPP-4 inhibitor, a GLP-1 receptor agonist. The DPP-4 inhibitor is citagliptin. The GLP-1 receptor agonist is liraglutide, a sulfonyluroglimepiride, or insulin in the form of glargine, they will be randomized to receive this and be followed over time to see if one or other medication has a benefit not only in terms of glucose control, but also in other outcomes because these drugs have side effects that we don't sure. necessarily want. For example, one could find hypoglycemia with insulin. Is that a limiting factor as people try to get better control? And so we're going to do a variety of things. And at the same time, coming back to the beta cell, part of the studies we're going to do are going to be mechanistic so we can understand how these drugs are working to potentially preserve the beta cell or potentially even accelerate dysfunction in it. So that's the one study. The other study is called RISE, which stands for Restoring Insulin Secretion. And the website for this one is simple too, risestudy.org. The RISE study is being done as a feasibility study, also supported by NIH, in seven centers around the country. It's going to take adults and children with type 2 diabetes or with pre-diabetes, and when I say type 2 diabetes, very recently diagnosed. So for the first time, we're going to have a study which we're going to be able to compare children and adults because we're seeing more and more diabetes coming out in children, and we understand the beta cells are key to that too. So we can look at children and adults, and within the adult protocols, there's going to be a medication protocol, and in one center, in fact, laparoscopic banding. So we're going to be able to answer the question whether we can slow the progression of diabetes with much more aggressive approaches than using the diabetes prevention program or any others. And should any of them show any promise, the NIH is likely to take them and put them into a large clinical trial down the road. So this is a very critical study. And what we will also be doing is doing very sophisticated measurements, looking at insulin sensitivity or insulin action in the peripheral tissues and the liver, as well as looking at the function of the beta cells so we can get a handle on insulin secretion and at the end of the day, we'll learn a lot about physiology, pathophysiology, and the potential for new interventions to try and slow progression to diabetes. We've had a great meeting here, and, and I think the audience here has really heard a lot of great information. What I think the Endocrine Society did as well was it showed how nimble it is. It was able, within the period of three days, to take the controversy that is out there regarding incretin therapy in the pancreas, which was actually a topic of a recent NIH workshop. And at the end of that workshop, pulled together a panel that actually met today, and I was, good fortune for me was I was asked to be a member of that four-person panel to discuss this controversy. And I think at the end of the day, the panel concluded correctly that the data that we're hearing about is important. We need to take note of it. But the amount of data that we have is insufficient at this stage to draw any conclusions. And that it's absolutely critical that we continue to gather data to learn whether there is truly a risk of pancreatic problems with these medications or whether this is related to the bias of reporting and the small sample size that have been studied. As part of the panel's conclusion, which I would reiterate to you now, is simply that the panel agrees with the American Diabetes Association's call to the manufacturers of these different medications to provide 
patient-level data to an independent organization like the ADA, which will then have them analyzed by people who have no relationship to those particular compounds and are not an industry, so hopefully we can get a better insight into what's going on. We need to know this information as practitioners so we can do what's good for our patients, and we should not, in my mind, be making decisions that don't fit with the best that we can do for our patients with too little data, and thus the call from the ADA is appropriate, and the panel totally endorses it. Well, thank you, Dr. Khan, for being here today. You are listening to ReachMD, and this is Highlights from Endo 2013. We are at the Endocrine Society's 95th Annual Meeting and Expo in San Francisco, California. I'm speaking today with Dr. Ronald Tamler, who is the director of Mount Sinai Diabetes Center in New York City, New York. Dr. Tamler is presenting, there's an app for that, Smartphones for Diabetes Management. Welcome, Dr. Tamler. Thank you very much for having me. First question is to give our audience a better feel for what is the basic overview of your discussion at this meeting? Well, my interest in uh, smartphones for diabetes management started off when uh, the father of a young patient who never brought her glucose meter told me, you know, nobody ever brings their meter, but everybody carries their cell phone. This was in 2006, long before the advent of the iPhone. And that's when it all started. So if you take, for instance, a patient with insulin-requiring diabetes, they might ask you, well, I'm looking for a tool to help me calculate my insulin dose. I'm looking for a tool that keeps me motivated. I'm looking for a tool that could help me communicate better with my provider team. That tool actually exists because everybody carries their cell phone on them. And we now know that there are more than 125 million smartphones in the US. So this provides incredible opportunities. Because smartphones are ubiquitous, they are truly in a position to provide evidence-based opportunities for improving patient self-management of chronic diseases. And diabetes is the poster child chronic disease that a patient has to manage himself or herself. Because every time uh, a patient eats something, it's related to their diabetes. Every time a patient has to take their medication, there's a lot of self-management involved. And instead of having somebody remind you, a person remind you or call you, you can often program that into your smartphone. And you can use that smartphone to give reminders for medications, to help track blood glucose levels, to provide uh, motivational messages, to scan food labels and uh, provide information about foods, to uh, track exercise and um, even to provide pricing information for uh, medications, for instance, when you're standing in a, in a store and you're looking at something and you think to, you're thinking, well, should I buy this here or should I buy this online? So the, the cell phone and the smartphone, which is always on your person, really has tremendous opportunities. Sadly, what we found is that while there are a ton, several hundreds of smartphone applications for Android and iPhone, which are the two dominating operating systems, most of those applications are garbage because they are written by, they are programmed by people who never asked patients and people who never considered evidence-based medicine. And also, they forego the opportunities of motivational messaging that are grounded in behavioral science. 
That said, there are several reasonably good diabetes applications for self-management, for tracking blood sugars and for helping patients manage their daily lives. For Android, there's a free application that I can wholeheartedly recommend, which is called OnTrack Diabetes. For Android and iPhone, um, there's Track 3 Diabetes, which also incorporates a uh, nutrition database. That costs $7. And then there's also Glucose Buddy, which is built on a freemium model, meaning it's free to download, but then for other functionality, you have to pay extra. Still, those apps do not tap into the full potential of evidence-based medicine and behavioral science. And so there are efforts underway to build even better apps that make use of this ubiquity of the technology. Thank you, Dr. Tamler. You've been listening to ReachMD. This conference coverage, Diabetes Diagnosis and Management, was brought to you by the Endocrine Society and its Hormone Health Network. This annual workshop focuses on current issues in clinical diabetes management and provides state-of-the-art updates. If you would like to hear more from Endo 2013, please visit endosessions.org. And if you missed any of this program, please go to ReachMD.com or the ReachMD Medical Radio app to download this podcast today.